0: Relax and get ready to learn. Here's Pat.
1: Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I am bringing today to you Irene Nobles, who is the president of Allegiant Health Consulting. She is a legal nurse consultant with extensive experience in healthcare. Started off her career as a psychiatric technician working with people who were chronically, mentally and criminally insane. And she learned about violence against healthcare providers well before the conversation that we're having today about the safety of healthcare providers within the field. She gravitated to the area of clinical risk and compliance issues and provides attorneys with services related to evaluating long-term care cases, which is her passion. Irene, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Pat, it's an honor to be here.
1: I know for people who have not experienced the, the differences in various clinical backgrounds and clinical settings, could you share for our listener, what are some of the specific challenges associated with taking care of people In a long term care setting? Sure.
2: Well, you know, taking care of that population is very different than addressing, you know, typical acute care patients in a hospital setting. Um, You know, it's a geriatric population typically, and along with that, there are behavioral uh, issues that sometimes come as dementia sets in with some of the aged population. So there is a specific training that needs to happen when you're working in that uh, area and that population because the regulations for nursing home um, and long-term care is very different uh, than what governs acute care and how we approach care delivery for those patients. So um, that kind of bleeds into um, an LNC reviewing a record for that type of care um, it is, the approach is going to be different and you have to have a little bit of a knowledge base uh, in order to get started with that.
1: I know that long-term care is probably one of the most heavily regulated portions of healthcare. First of all, why is it so heavily regulated?
2: Well, um, you know, I think it's because the nature of the population that we're dealing with is very vulnerable. Um, They tend to be at a higher risk for being uh, subject and victims of abuse. And I think the regulations are put in place in an attempt to try to protect the residents. From those circumstances of, you know, exploitation, financial abuse, verbal or physical abuse, which unfortunately still is common in those settings today. So the regulations are put in place to ensure that there's a, a at least a minimal baseline level of care delivery. Um, and it sometimes isn't always practical um you know but it is there to i think to really protect the vulnerable population of the aged adults
1: and could you give our listener a sense of which agencies are involved in regulating long-term care sure
2: Primarily, it's going to be um, CMS, the Centers for, um, you know, Medicare. They are those other federal regulations that govern um, all of those healthcare skilled nursing facilities across the nation, and then each individual state has their own set of state guidelines and regulations that supplement the federal regs and. Typically, um, you know, each nursing home is required to um, put processes in place and follow both sets of regulations. Um, and when it comes down to determining uh, compliance uh, and whether or not the, the facility is um, meeting the requirements, they're going to go with the strictest set of rules uh, when identifying deficiencies. And so, even though you may be, may be following state regulations. Um, if you're not following the federal regulations, you can still be cited as deficient You know, in that practice.
1: When those surveyors come in, I know that there is a, a big focus on looking at the medical record. They sometimes can be brought in because of a complaint and then they are evaluating a specific chart or a series of charts. And they can also do medical record review during routine surveys. I know that it's a surprise to people who are used to looking at hospital charts when they see a nursing home chart and notice the differences. What are some of those differences?
2: Yes, it's definitely very... Very different, Pat, and and I've reviewed records for both. Um, but one of the main challenges to consider is um, not all nursing home facilities are fully electronic. For starters, their records are typically still going to be partially electronic and partially on paper. Um, And with that being said, it is considered, uh, or can be considered a long-term care environment for nursing home. Initially, some residents will go there for rehab and um, sometimes the expectation is to transition back home when their therapies have completed and they've made progress, but that's not always the case. And so sometimes residents make skilled nursing homes their home. And so they can be there for a very extended period of time. And that could be months on end and even years. So that results in a very voluminous medical record. Um, and part of the process is to also thin those paper records. And as they get thicker and consume, you know, become voluminous, that those records are then taken and stored in medical records. And so, um, Care delivery can sometimes be a little challenging because you don't have access to some of the previous records, particularly if there was a diagnostic exam or something that happened a year prior. It may not be in the current record right there on the chart where nurses won't have access to it, and so that that causes a lot of breakdown and continuity. Um, but I think there's different chart sections as well, which is another key component. Um, and if you're not familiar with the different chart sections and the type of documents that you would find in uh, the record, you're gonna have a more difficult time or more challenging time trying to analyze uh, the facts of the case.
0: Uh, I know that
1: one of the things that surprises legal nurse consultants is that they start looking for nursing notes that are being written two times or, or three times a day Uh, frequent physician visits, treatments that are all on a one piece of paper, as opposed to scattered in shifts. Can you talk us through what we could expect to find in the way of nursing documentation and then physician documentation?
2: Sure. Sure. Yeah, the, there's definitely a difference in frequency of documentation. The expectation is not going to be as often uh, in a nursing home setting than what's required in a hospital. Um, you're going to most often see nowadays with the electronic record, most of the nursing uh, documentation should be in electronic format. And you're gonna see you know, your standard admission assessment um, they're they're required to do skin skin evaluation, so you would see a Braden a Braden score um, and a skin a skin check. There's going to be other types of documents um, that are surrounding various assessments, like an elopement assessment and a side rail assessment, a smoking assessment. All of those different things that you wouldn't necessarily see. Um, and then the physicians typically are the p- people that make up the paper part of the record because most of the EMRs in nursing home, are they have no integration. They're not um, connected with any other EMR in the healthcare system with the providers that are coming to see those residents. So it doesn't, so the records don't interface. And so um, facilities do not, force or mandate the physicians to gain access to the existing electronic record and do their documentation in the, there while they're visiting the resident. Um, and I'm never not really sure why that is because I know when physicians go to the hospital, they are required to log into the EMR and document their notes, whether it's through drag-in dictation or typing it directly in the system orders are required to be electronic, but for some reason that doesn't carry over into nursing home settings. And so when they get there, they're writing paper orders and paper notes and those sorts of things, and that has to go somewhere. So this is why they create a paper chart. Um, you're gonna see other various consents uh, in, the, in the paper record. Um, you would see labs and diagnostics. Again, those are not electronic Um, baseline care plan and MDS, which is called the minimum data set. We'll get into that a little later, but that's a major assessment um, that the interdisciplinary team puts in place. And even certain flow sheets from nursing, you would see in paper um, format like neuro checks, for example, things of that nature that are incidental that come up as things arise. Um, Usually those are in paper format. And so you can imagine if there are orders and doctor's notes and labs and diagnostics in a paper chart at the nurse's station while the nurse is out on the floor with her med cart and her computer uh, assessing her patient, she's not necessarily going to have convenient access to perhaps some important information that that she would need at the time when she's at her fingertips. So it's a back and forth situation all the time of trying to run and gather information and then back out onto the floor to, to treat your patients. So it, it creates a challenging dynamic when caring for patients in that setting.
0: I had not
1: considered the hybrid aspect of the chart as causing that inconvenience. I was reviewing a chart just um, about a month ago that included some handwritten physician documentation and having grown up in the totally handwritten medical record, and then, then transitioned to an electronic one, it was like a rude shock to go from the electronic part to, oh, that's right, I have to decipher physician handwriting again. I haven't had to do that for quite a long time. Right,
2: right. That still exists. That, like I said, most of the time they're they're doing hand notes. Now there are some. Consultants that will come in and um, bring their laptop and type notes and dictate notes into their own electronic system, and then later they'll fax those those electronic notes to the facility. But again, it's the lack of of EMR integration. Um, that an interface that creates that barrier uh, and and, and not holding the the providers accountable and mandating that they get into the system and document in the system itself when they when they're there at the facility.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a cumbersome system to me, Irene. It is. Easily (laughs) a physician forget to do it or get distracted or it might not be timely.
2: Correct, correct. So they may come and visit and do rounds on all their residents and see 20 people at one time and then they're off, you know. And so you don't necessarily know the outcome of that visit right then and there. We try to catch them before they run out the door, but we may be in another resident room and not notice that they left, or we wanted to ask them a question while they were here to go tell them something about their resident. And they're already out the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you don't have any information because they go back to their office and might dictate notes or write notes and then fax that in later. So there is definitely a delay in the transfer of communication, you know, between the nursing and the providers that uh, come in and treat the residents.
1: And how often are physicians required to come in? Further regulations are
2: only required once every 30 days. Uh, believe it or not, you know, um, when they're a long term resident. Now, they are, that is often not the case. They will often come more frequently. Um, some physicians will visit the facility daily, but they may not see the same residents daily. They'll come and visit maybe two or three at a time, then they'll come back the next day, visit another handful, and so on and so forth. So they are uh, definitely more frequently present in the facility. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're seeing those residents uh, all that all that time that they're there. Um, if that makes sense, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. seeing you know, a few at a time. So they may have been there every day, but only touched base with that resident once in the previous two weeks. Mm-hmm. For example. So And that's another. Uh, thing that is different than the hospital setting, um, where the expectation is physicians are visiting their patients daily.
1: Um, Yes, as well as the use of hospitalists who are in charge of those patients in the hospital and don't have a private practice and are there much more frequently as well. Right, right. And then we get to nursing documentation, which is different, again, in terms of the frequency. Tell us about the expected minimum amount of nursing documentation.
2: Well, again, you know, there's always the nursing assessment on admission um, is the expectation. And if a resident is uh, on Medicare, and so they are required and they're there for therapies or skilled nursing as opposed to long-term care, so there's a difference between that. Uh, I know sometimes we use the the words interchangeably, but typically when a resident is first admitted to a nursing home, they're there for a skilled need. They have a wound, they need IV therapy, they need physical therapy. Um, per Medicare that's considered a skilled need and and so they're there um, for a certain amount of the days that Medicare will cover for that type of treatment. And then once those days are exhausted, um, the resident is either discharged or they're given the option to privately pay for a long-term care stay. And so when, if that happens, um, then the documentation requirements and the frequency changes. Um, but while they're skilled, their nursing does need to have um, daily notes. And so there's usually a recap of nursing care that was provided uh, for the specific reasons why the resident is there. Um, So it's not okay to just put a generic note that says resident is fine, no changes, and document your physical assessment because they're not there for that. They were there for an infection or a wound or therapy. And so nursing is required to specifically make notes on why the skilled nurse is necessary to treat that wound or what the patient's response is to the therapy interventions um, and things like that. So the detail needs to be a little bit more focused on the goals of the skilled nursing rehab stay. So, um, and then there's skin assessments uh, and Braden scale, and that is required uh, to be completed upon admission and then weekly thereafter, um, which differs than acute care as well. I, I, some institutions require daily Braden uh, assessments and skin checks, uh, or at least every shift uh, in a hospital setting, whereas in skilled nursing, even though nurses may look at a, a resident skin every day, they're not required to complete a formal skin evaluation or skin assessment, um, except once a week. So things like that, um, documentation. Beyond that, is really that just that? There's not a whole lot that nursing is required to do besides, you know, um, those specific assessments. Then there's, of course, the care plan. Uh, which is supposed to be initiated on admission, typically by the nurse. Um, it's called a baseline care plan. And then follow up a, a reassessment of the care plan and revision of the care plan needs to occur on a regular basis as well, whenever there's a change in the condition of the resident. Um, there's no specific timeline for that. It's usually um, when when there's a change, but Along with care plan revisions comes um, the MDS assessment which stands for minimum data set and that is a comprehensive assessment dictated by Medicare that must be completed on admission. Um, and that triggers the whole development of the finalized care plan. And so um, there is frequency requirements of how often that MDS needs to be updated and completed um, if the resident has a continued stay. So it's, it's very different Um, it's very different than, than a hospital.
1: When you point out the MDS, it makes me think about a case that I worked on several years ago in which the attorney had strong suspicion that the nursing home staff rewrote the medical record and the issue at hand was a pressure sore that developed And he found these beautifully written MDSs that were all in the same handwriting, and they were all dated for January 1st, a day he knew that the MDS committee was not meeting. And it was perfectly consistent, detailed handwriting, and all of it, he established later, was rewritten at one time to try to protect the interests of the facility, as opposed to the interests of the resident who ended up with a a very extensive pressure sore. Have you seen instances where you questioned the documentation validity in cases you've reviewed?
2: Um, I have. Um, There was one case that I reviewed um, a few months back. It wasn't too long ago. and it involved a fall of a resident. And it was interesting because the nurse's note that described the incident had discussed that, um, you know, this time that the resident was found and indicated that the CNA had just been in there uh, 30 minutes prior and the resident was sleeping. Um, and so, basically, a very vague note asserting that they did nothing wrong, but the resident just got up and assisted. But when I went back and looked at the CNA flow sheets um, and their documentation, they had documented 30 minutes prior that they were there uh, with the resident, but they didn't document that the resident was sleeping. Um, In fact, uh, well, they did, they made a note saying resident asleep um, in in their note. But when I went to the flow sheets, I saw at that specific time that they took a, um, vital signs and had um, toileted the resident and documented a BM. So I'm thinking to myself, well, we can't have both here. We can't be <laughs> toileting and having a BM and taking vitals at two in the morning when your nurse is saying they were sleeping at that time. So which is it, you know? Um, And then later went on to see that 10 minutes after that flow sheet note of being toileted and vital signs, um, there was a pain assessment completed and the resident had expressed severe pain uh, and was medicated. Uh, So I looked at the MAR and saw that they were medicated for pain. And yet all this was taking place, you know, 30 minutes prior to the actual documented time that the alleged incident occurred. So it made me start to think. Well, why are you giving pain medication? Um, why is the patient reporting to ten on the scale pain scale if they were sleeping at that time? And and so it it just didn't make sense to me. So I was able to kind of pick apart and and look at the timelines. I, I looked at the transfer record when the resident was sent out to the to the emergency room for an evaluation. That uh, time that they were called. And what was documented on the transfer form was 10 minutes prior to the time that the nurse documented the incident actually occurred. So again, lots of things were happening prior to when she actually alleged the incident occurred. So there was some of those inconsistencies you can pick up on, but you have to know where to look. Um, and, And when you mentioned the MDS, sometimes people don't even understand the right way to s- interpret that as well. And when was the MDS completed versus when was it signed that it was completed? Um, they get the dates wrong all the time. And, and that's because the MDS, you have 14 days to complete that uh, assessment from the time the resident is, admission, is admitted. and um, And oftentimes because the MDS drives the care plan development, you're not gonna see the care plan coming until after that. Uh, and so many times I see nurses that don't have the nursing home experience reviewing cases and I and, and saying that this is an incomplete, they deviated from the standard of care, they didn't complete a care plan like they should have on admission. Well, there was a care plan, it was called a baseline care plan. You're not familiar with that document and you were looking purely off of the care plan that's in the chart and the MDS, and it wasn't complete because they weren't completed with their assessment yet, uh, and that's the reason why. And so again, there's lots of little innuendos like that, that unless you have that knowledge ahead of time, you you may not uh, interpret their record appropriately.
1: There are also documents that contain information about the resident that never make their way into. That residence chart. Can you give us a little sense of what other types of documents the attorney might be able to request that would shed light on a resident's care? Yes,
2: it's supplemental documentation that I look for all the time. Um, you know that necessarily aren't part of the medical record, aside from the the policies and procedures, and perhaps protocols, or some facilities have standing orders. Those are obvious, and, and, and most LNCs know this. If they're evaluating a fall case, they might think to request the fall policy, you know, fall prevention policy, to help them uh, interpret whether the staff followed protocols to ensure the safety of the resident. But there are other things that you can look for uh, and request that really can give you some good insight uh, into the quality of care that the facility provides and can really help either support um, plaintiff claims or, on the flip side, help defend against them if you're working for the defense. Um, one of the most common things that I always try to look for is the CMS. Uh, star rating report. Um, It's called the quality of resident care reports um, and and star rating reports, which you can find on the CMS uh, website. And basically each nursing home is rated on a five-star scale, much like a hotel, right? Five stars is great quality care and one star is not so great at all. So, consumers can go on and look at the star ratings for those facilities to get an insight into the quality of care. And there are certain quality indicators that the facilities are required to submit data on. And and that also comes from um, deficiencies, state surveys, uh, MDS, complaint investigations, all those things kind of comprise that data. But um, the star rating and quality reports, state survey inspection reports, which will highlight deficiencies that were identified, um, the corrective action plans that the facility had to put in place to correct those deficiencies. Those things can be accessible. Um, I like to look at the daily staffing reports, um, hours per patient day to make sure that the facility is meeting the minimal state requirements for staffing ratios. Cause you, know, you hear that a lot as being a, a claim that they ever short staff, short staff, short staff. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean just because there weren't you know um, lower nurse to patient ratios that they were short staffed. You have to prove that they were short staffed, and you do that by looking at their daily staffing ratios. And there's a formula they use, but you can look at those reports. Um, I also look at uh, other things like a resident council minutes, uh, meeting minutes. So all nursing homes are required to have a resident council. Uh, where the residents can get together and talk about uh, their concerns or um, suggestions to for activities and different things like that. And they are allowed to invite a facility member to attend that meeting. Um, and so a lot of times uh, you'll get some good information from resident council meeting minutes um, where they might be discussing light issues or linen issues, housekeeping. Uh, the food is, you know, cold or not getting what we ordered, you know, random things like that can help. green. I mean, I've gotten some good nuggets out of that, um, particularly when there was a fall case and there was accusations about um, timeliness of response to call lights and um, there was huge delays and this is why the resident got up and um, no one came. So then I might ask for the call light report. Uh, because a lot of those call bell systems um, can run uh, reports on the response time, uh, specifically to that resident from their room. So you can look at that and see, oh gosh, yeah, they rang their bell and 45 minutes it was ringing and no one came to shut it off. So um, you can validate you know, some of those claims by looking at that supplemental documentation. Um, a lot of times though you can have access to the incident accident logs, you may not get the actual incident report, but you can look at the logs. Um, that's the first thing the state surveyor asks for when they come in and show me your incident and accident logs. And facilities are required to keep a log uh, of all the those events in their facility. So if you're pulling that log and you're looking and you're seeing 25 falls in a month, um, we have a concern about safety in this facility. So. Those are very valuable pieces of information. Grievance logs, same type of thing when a resident wants to file a grievance, social services is required to log that and summarize what the grievance was. Um, Infection control logs, wound care logs, all the logs are things that you have access to. Um, And then I like to look into employee files sometimes because I wanna validate that the Um, employees have had and completed the required competencies uh, and training for long-term care uh, and what's required in those settings. Um, So things like that are are good supplemental documents
1: to to consider. Well, you brought up some things that I didn't know was available. And I think over the years, in particular, attorneys ask experts you know, is there any way of knowing how long that patient's call light was on? And in older systems, there is no way, but you're describing now that it's much more readily available to find that data. Yes, data yes. alone can make a huge difference in a case.
2: It does. And, and when I was the director of quality and risk management um, for an acute care rehab hospital, um, I was also the Patient safety officer, and I was in charge of obviously collecting data on our core measures, and falls was one of them. And I also led the falls team uh, and developed the fall policies and the fall prevention program. So, so, the call light report was data that I looked at all the time. Um, I later became the chief nursing officer, and I was also required to pull those call light reports because um, when we looked at patient satisfaction surveys. Um, patients will make comments and they'll say no one came, the call light was forever, you know, those sorts of things. So I, I, I wanted to validate the, the truth behind that. Um, and so I would pull those call light reports and look at that patient room specifically to see how long that call light had been on. Um, and, and that was helpful then to go back and, you know, re-educate the staff or change your processes, you know, look at why why is there a call line delay, you know, it's not always staffing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. there are other issues that you need to look at and consider. And so um, yeah, but again, unless you have that exposure or know that that's available to you, you, you could potentially be missing some really great information that can help you with your case.
1: I know that the person who's watching this on our YouTube channel or listening to it on the audio channels, is going to say, How can I reach Irene to ask her a question? What would be the best way for that to happen?
2: Well, Pat, um, individuals can email me. That's the best way. Um, it's Irene at Allegiant Health and that's A L L E G I A N T Health Advisors with an S.com. Or that can be found on LinkedIn. Um, I I do not have a website at this time. That's in the works right now. So I don't have a web address to share, but uh, certainly I'm very responsive to email um, and I am uh, responsive on LinkedIn.
1: Well, Irene, I so appreciate you sharing your expertise. I know from this brief conversation that we had that there's so much more that we could have talked about and in particularly my biggest takeaway from what you shared is the vast amount of information that's available beyond the resident's medical record. If the plaintiff attorney, for example, doesn't know to ask for that through the help of a legal nurse consultant, the facility is not going to volunteer that information, particularly in cases where it's not going to be helpful to their defense. So it it requires us as legal nurse consultants to be aware of what's available and the nuances of nursing home care cases get a good person like irene as an expert witness or as a background person to help to help you with a case if you're handling a nursing home case and you're not familiar with it it is its own world and it's very different than acute care or outpatient care or long-term psychiatric care, each little world has its own ecosystem, rules, documentation, regulations, and information that helps you, after the fact, establish what occurred in the care of a particular resident. So thank you so much Irene for being here with us. It's been wonderful.
2: Thank you, Pat, it's been my pleasure.
1: And if you have not already downloaded the Expert Edu app from the Apple Store or from Google Play, that app is a way for you to stay in tune with us to watch the videos and read the articles and watch the podcasts that I produce through Legal Nurse Business. There are tips for you as a Legal Nurse Consultant. And also, if you are interested in writing and improving your writing skills another part of the app is designed to help you with writing. So go to the Apple Store for Apple or Android is Google Play and download Expert Edu, which is my app covering education for experts and supporting people who are interested in helping improve their skills, whether it's through legal nurse consulting or writing. Be sure to come back next week. New show, new guest, new topic. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Pat Iyer. This is Legal Nurse Podcast. I am with Rick June, who is in Alberta. We've been talking about some of the components that help make your legal nurse consulting business successful. Rick, what were some of the key topics that we covered in your podcast?
0: Thank
3: you, Pat. Um, Some of the, what I thought were key points was, first of all, you need to be crystal clear about who you are and continue to remain aware of how you're growing as a person and reacting to things around you. That makes a big difference to the relationships that you're going to have with your clients and how they play out. The second thing is um, it's helpful to know who you wanna serve. Who do you want to be your ideal client? If you have an idea of who you want as your client, you will find that those kinds of people resonate with you and are drawn to you, but you need to understand Who they are first. And then the last point is you need to have a sense of what the pressures and triggers are that your clients are facing in their own work environment so that you can uh, provide a little bit of give and take. It's nice to know your boundaries, but it's also nice to understand the things that are causing them concern and. Some of the triggers they have that they feel very pressured to deal with. Um, I would say that I guess those are the three most important things in my experience that are helpful to pay attention to as you both start your business and continue to grow it.
1: And Rick is a small business coach and consultant who is also an entrepreneur who has established several successful businesses, be sure to catch his podcast, Rick June. And I'm Pat Ayer, Legal Nurse Podcast. We would love for you to watch his show and get some of the tips that we shared in his show specific to what makes a legal nurse consultant successful. See you there. Thanks.
3: Thank you.
0: Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.